Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our common life, our public debates, and how we can better engage across our differences. As always, please do rate, review, and share the podcast if you're enjoying it. And we also wanted to let you know about a live show we have coming up on the 11th of September. Our guests will be Richard Ayoade and Lydia Fox. Keep an eye on the Theos website and on the sacred social channels for more details and to book your tickets. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Douglas Alexander. Douglas served as an MP for 18 years and spent nine years in government under Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, holding a range of cabinet positions and serving as UK governor to the World Bank. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard University and chair of trustees at UNICEF. We spoke about his Church of Scotland faith, joining the Labour Party in his early teens, not missing the House of Commons chamber, and what economics could do to help with our politics of anger. I hope you enjoy listening. Douglas, I'm going to kick off with the really meaty question that we ask everyone, which is about your sacred values. And by that, we don't necessarily mean anything religious, but really the deep principles that have formed you, that you try and live by, and that you really feel a strong emotional commitment to and feel compromised when those are pressed on or those are threatened. It's actually quite difficult, I think, to know what ours are, but having had a very short amount of time to reflect, what comes to mind for you? I think probably a sense of the equal worth of every human being. I've had the great privilege in my life of um, travelling extensively as well as um, in a past life representing the community in which I grew up and whether it's lessons that I draw from home or lessons that I draw from abroad, I guess the essential similarity of the human experience, albeit people can experience it in very different conditions, has been one of the truths that I've observed and tried to live by. And take us back a bit to your childhood. Do you think that that was in the air growing up? Do you think that came later? Where does that value come from for you? I think I am marked and shaped by the upbringing I had in West Central Scotland. Um, My father was a minister in the Church of Scotland. My mother was a doctor in the National Health Service. So there was a innate sense of the dignity of service in the house that I grew up in. Also growing up in a manse, we were the kind of junction box for the community. We had all kinds of people come through the door on a regular basis, some uh, welcome, some maybe less welcome. But uh, in that sense, I think I, I probably imbibed a pretty strong sense of community as well growing up. And that gave you a sense of the the whole range of, of human characters that comprised not just the parish, but also the community in which I grew up. So I feel very privileged, honestly, to have had as strong a sense of affinity and belonging with that area that I grew up in. And whatever I've done subsequently in terms of work or travel or other experiences, I still feel the tug of that sense of home. Tell me a little bit more about the kind of theological legacy there. And I, even as I ask this, I feel the weight of asking that question of someone who's been involved in British public life, because, you know, Gordon Brown, also a son of the manse, talks about the legacy of it. But I think it's much more difficult to talk personally about public faith for a politician, wherever you sit on it. So only if you're comfortable. Do you mind saying how that leg- what that theological legacy and your relationship to the church looks like now? The truth is my faith is um, personal rather than either private or public. I think I probably have a very kind of traditional Scottish Presbyterian aversion to wearing my faith on my sleeve. 
But on the other hand, I've no interest in denying that it has shaped who I am and continues to um, uh, sustain and challenge me um, uh, now in, in midlife. Uh, I come from a, a pretty strongly religious background. My father was, uh, for many years, a parish minister in West Central Scotland. My grandfather, my dad's dad, was also a parish minister in West Central Scotland. He started off working as an engineer uh, in Glasgow and famously studied theology by sitting the theology books on the lathe in his engineering shops. He came to the ministry late. Uh, and and in that sense, that's one side of the family. On the other side of the family, um, both of my grandparents, my grandmother and my grandfather, were medical missionaries in China um, and served for a number of years, principally during the 1920s and 1930s, um, in Mugden in Manchuria in China, where they established a medical school. So in that sense, there was a very strong sense of uh, a religious inheritance. Um, Didn't you have a f- an, a, an aunt who wrote hymns? Is that right? Uh, it's several greats. And, right. Yes, but Cecil Francis Alexander, who comes from County Antrim rather than from West Central Scotland, she she wrote All Things Bright and Beautiful, There is a Green Hill Far Away, Once in Royal David City. I think if the intellectual property laws uh, had been written differently, I'd probably be a multimillionaire, but alas, that was not the case. Um, but no, she was, a, as you say, a very famous hymn writer, even if I'm not entirely comfortable with all of her theological judgments uh, in, in the hymns that are still sung today. So in that sense, I come from a, a family background that was marked and shaped by um, religious devotion. Um, in terms of just the daily life growing up, um, we were conscious of, of my dad's work. You could not be given the, the position um, he held within the community. But um, I think in quite an admirable way, he carried his theological convictions clearly but lightly. He didn't seek to impose it on the family. Um, But as kids, we went to church every Sunday. They say in the Church of Scotland that the pulpit is six foot above contradiction. And in that sense, if dad was six feet above contradiction when he was preaching on a Sunday morning, that certainly wasn't the case at Sunday lunchtime when uh, arguments and debates would rage around the kitchen table. So in that sense, it was for me, a very natural and and familiar um, part of my upbringing to, to be part of that parish. And um, I continue to be a, a practising member of the Church of Scotland today. We had, um, in the very early days of the podcast, Tim Farron uh, come talk to us after delivering a Theos Annual Lecture on political liberalism. And it's come up as a kind of thread a few times because I've talked to a lot of liberals and a lot of atheists on the podcast around that question of private commitments, um, public positions and the role of politics and how we navigate how much of our cells we bring in the into the public square particularly the bits for which there isn't necessarily um you know as we saw uh, m- uh much shared sense um with tim's social conservatism as you watch that happen as a, as a leader of part of a party as you've been so close to the leadership of a party what was your sense of where we are on our ability to talk about those very difficult and painful disagreements in public. Um, do you think we're getting to a healthier place? Do you think that what happened was necessary? Or do you think actually there's a, a kind of closing down of our ability to handle those differences? I think probably the latter. I think it's it's more difficult. I have to say it struck me very clearly when I was in government. Um, when I was in government with many colleagues, but one of them was Ruth Kelly, who I used to talk a lot to in the years after 9-11 in terms of how did we engage constructively and effectively 
with faith communities across the United Kingdom um, in a way that was meaningful and, and useful in the context of the time. And I have to say it struck both of us how few people today are comfortable or literate even with a language of religion. And many of the misperceptions that I felt had taken hold at the time in the public debates and in the public square reflected the fact that for many people, if you like, in religious language, we were asking them to recite or to sing a hymn the words of which had been forgotten one, two or three generations ago. And in that sense, I think, given how religion continues to affect um, certain uh, cohorts, populations across the United Kingdom, but also continues to matter internationally in a profound sense politically, um, then actually I think that is a loss um, because I think it's it's going to be it's going to continue to be important in the future to be able to recognise the legitimacy of people who have perspectives perhaps that you don't share, but that are fundamental to their sense of self and fundamental to how they see the world. It's really interesting that you mentioned the kind of international aspect because I've spoken to several people who've said they feel like Britain is is a particular example of that and those involved in international development and globally and of course with your work with UNICEF um, and the Department for International Development, you spend a lot of time globally where religion is a bigger issue. How might the place of how we talk about faith in the UK be improved, do you think? Is it about bringing in those global voices to remind us that we are perhaps the exception or can lean parochial on those issues at, at times? Or do we just um, accept that that's where we are and carry on regardless? I mean, no, I think the, the, the benefit of, of working internationally and experiencing that diversity of, of um, encounter with religion is that it's a it's a necessary challenge to the easy and wrong-headed assumption that somehow uniformly globally there is a move towards secularism um, and that religion is a phenomenon of the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, maybe even 19th or 20th century, but not of the 21st century. And actually, if you have the opportunity, as I've had even in recent weeks, to travel in Africa or to travel elsewhere, you realise that religion continues to be absolutely fundamental to many millions, billions of people's sense of self and sense of the world. And in that sense, if you are simply to dismiss or to check out of those debates, then actually that's really an impediment to understanding some of the biggest drivers and some of the biggest influences in shaping how people see the world and then act. I'm going to, it's a last question that's faith-related and it bridged helpfully to talking about your politics at what within your faith tradition and your background helps inform your uh, political philosophy, if anything? Um, well, I think within the Presbyterian tradition of Christianity, there is a respect for all, but a difference for none. Um, and in that sense, I think there is an innate democratic quality about the the religion in which I grew up, which has probably almost certainly shaped the the choices and the work that I've done subsequently, but also I think is important in reinforcing that sense of the equal worth of every human being. Um, in that sense, I, I although I've had the many opportunities working in government or working beyond government, um, I think um, that tradition unequivocally keeps your feet on the ground and, and maintains a sense of actually why you're doing what you're doing. I read a, a book about a year ago, which I'll give you a copy of actually, because I've got two 
I ended up reviewing it, uh, about the Church of Scotland called The Minister and a Murderer. And it was really clear how much more, I think the writer described, describes it as ornery, the the um, the really anti-authoritarian and anti-hierarchical instincts in the Church of England, which perhaps for those, you know, south of the border who, who are uh, used to the Church of England and the way it's so enmeshed with with monarchy and with parliament and various other things. Uh, it's just a wonderful bit of the history that I feel like people don't know about. Well, truthfully, I, I, I got on a, a kind of tutorial in that when I became more than a decade ago now, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. Wow. And one of the responsibilities of being Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster is on behalf of Her Majesty the Queen, you are the patron to about 300 Church of England parishes in northwest England. What and, does that mean? Well, it means that you are consulted formally on the appointment of the vicar to those parishes. So the parish council in those parishes have to consult with their patrons to seek the approval of the patrons. It's like something um, out of a Jane Austen novel where well, you can just hand it, over it, a living. It, it struck me as something out of pre-Reformation Scotland. But I have to say, as a Presbyterian, I felt peculiarly ill-suited to try and be a patron to 300 Church of England parishes, just in the sense that... Uh, the, the history of, of the Reformation, not just in Scotland, but certainly in Scotland, was was a rejection of that kind of aristocratic um, patronage and, and, a, and a deep conviction that when a, a parish falls vacant, there should be a vacancy committee established. But ultimately, it was a judgment that should be reached within the parish rather than with reference to outside authorities. So, yes, it's it's intriguing how those differences have endured through the generations. So tell me about your politics. I gather that... Uh the Labour Party was something that came to you quite early in life. It was. I, um, I, it's a rather embarrassing admission, but I joined the Labour Party when I was 14. So I've been in it for many years now. Um, I think um, Jeremy Corbyn is the seventh Labour leader that I've experienced during my more than three decades of membership of the party. Really, the, the impetus to me joining the Labour Party was, in a secular rather than a religious sense, a leap of faith. Um, the local car plant in Linwood closed uh, back at the time that I joined the Labour Party. A whole number of my fellow um, pupils at school's parents lost their jobs on the assembly line when the car plant closed. And we were, at that point, being ravaged by deindustrialisation in West Central Scotland. And I had a belief, I didn't have much evidence at that time, but I had a belief that things could just be better and different. And for me... Um, politics seemed a mechanism by which to try and affect change in the local community. And in that sense, that's now many decades ago, but but the impetus was was a sense that um, we could reimagine a different community and reimagine a different world. And how much were you sort of temperamentally drawn to the, the hurly-burly of politics? I feel like one of the ways that our public debates is shaped is by our quite adversarial two-party system, and I wonder what that means for the pool of people that are drawn into it and the kind of way they like to engage. Are you someone who actually quite likes an argument that feels like that's a good way to truth or is that a necessary evil? No, I think if I, about my professional background, I trained in the law and then practised law in Scotland. And, yes, then. And in Scotland <laughs> if, you're, if you're a, a lawyer, it's We a... have a more adversarial than inquisitorial system. So I've seen both um, the inside of a sheriff court and also the, the, the House of Commons. I have to say... I I believe passionately in passionate debate, but I don't think that excludes one's responsibility to act compassionately to those engaged in the debate. And in that sense, um, I've been out of politics, what, more than four years now, four years almost uh, exactly. 
I really don't miss the Chamber of the House of Commons. It, it, it feels like kind of Hogwarts gone wrong when I see it on the television. <laughs> um, and and the, the, the flummery and, the, and the, the invective that you sometimes see, I, I didn't much enjoy at the time. And I certainly um, have not developed a great nostalgia for it since I've been out. Um, in that sense, I think if you look at the House of Commons, you can understand in some ways how it ended up where it's ended up. You know, the... If you look the next time on the television at Prime Minister's Question Time, there are two red lines running down the carpet, which are just more than two swords lengths apart, so that if the verbal um, dispute turned physical, nobody could get stabbed with somebody else's sword. So there was probably a logic to that several centuries ago. Similarly, the idea that you call the person that you're speaking to the Honourable or the Right Honourable, I think actually in its day had an integrity to it. It was the idea that there was an implicit assumption as to the motives being benign of your opponents. And again, I think that's a pretty healthy impetus. The problem is, I think, nowadays so much of that flummery and formality is a barrier rather than a bridge to people understanding the importance of a parliament setting the rules and, and expectations in a country um, that I think there's an urgent need for reform. So in that sense, I suppose I, I would come down on the line of saying I don't want 650 people in the House of Commons to hold hands and pretend that there are no disagreements, but I think there are better and more civilised ways to be able to have those disagreements than we often see on the television. And Tammy, personally, when you were very much part of those public political debates, what you learned about what is effective and what is ineffective in Engaging across difference because anyone, anytime getting anything done in politics, as you know, you held you were Secretary of State for a large range of departments and Shadow Secretary of State. To get anything done, you have to bridge difference. What were the kind of tools in your toolkit uh, to um, to connect with people who you might have very deep disagreements with? I suppose there's a dimension inside of government and outside of government. Inside of government. Um then actually being able to marshal the evidence and the arguments effectively is really important when you're sitting alongside cabinet colleagues and cabinet subcommittees, when you're sitting um, in the Prime Minister's room in Downing Street, you need to know what you're about. I, I remember very clearly when I was still a, a relatively junior minister, I was a minister of state for e-commerce and competitiveness. So it would be back in 2001, 2002. And I was working for Patricia Hewitt at the time, who was uh, Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, who probably very wisely sent me into the lion's den for a meeting with the, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, and the then Chancellor, Gordon Brown. And I went in with a two or three page brief explaining why we should spend several billion pounds on broadband fibre cabling or something. Uh, and Gordon turned up from the Treasury with a kind of 40 page brief on why we shouldn't spend any money on that particular um, initiative. And unsurprisingly, Gordon prevailed in that particular uh, dispute. But in that sense, there's a there's a lesson there for everybody, which is actually marshalling the detail, being on top of the facts and the information is a foundation. It's not in and of itself sufficient, but it's an important foundation. I think the second quality that I would identify is a facility for empathy, a capacity to put yourself in the shoes of the person with whom you are in dialogue and try to understand the problem or the challenge from their perspective. And I think I saw that probably in a most acute form um, when I was the Europe Minister and travelling regularly to European um, Council of Ministers meetings in Brussels and in Strasbourg, because it was very clear then with 28 countries around the, the, the table 
that those politicians who were most effective were those who didn't simply turn up, kind of impatiently drum their fingers on the table and demand that their fellow Europeans act in one way or another, but had the facility to engage in the differing perspectives of the different politicians around the table. And that's not unique to European politics. It's in a very acute form that you see it in Europe, but it's very relevant here in the United Kingdom as well. So I would probably say evidence and empathy would be my starters. We're going to want to talk a little bit about uh, what you've been up to in the last few years in, in an amazing uh, engagement with international development and poverty. But if we wind back about a decade, as I was reading through interviews and progress, and I hope you don't mind me saying, and I think we should talk about this more in public, you had a, a, a series of really hard things happen, a series of, of failures around the David Miliband leadership contest, around uh, the loss of a general election, which you'd been really key in the strategy of. And then, of course, famously losing your seat um, to Mari Black. If you're happy to, would you just talk a little bit about the experience of that personally and how it affected you and, and how you navigated that, that sense of a real change of trajectory? Uh, sure, I did. I'm, I'm not inhibited at all about talking about it. Um, I'm very proud of the campaigns that we ran. And in that sense, I don't look back and think, oh, my goodness, I wish I'd backed somebody else for the Labour leadership. Um, I thought David would have been very strong leader of the Labour Party and indeed a very strong um, Prime Minister if we'd prevailed. It was very close, but alas, it was clearly not to be. In terms of the loss of my own seat, it's, it's not a bundle of laughs being made unemployed in front of 11 million people live on television, but it has its upsides. It means people know that you are around and available. And truthfully, I look back on that night with um, an immense sense of gratitude to the people who reached out to me, some expected and some unexpected. Literally, while I was on the stage, my Blackberry, as it was then, was kind of filling up with people saying, please get in touch, please come and talk to us, so sorry, etc. And in that sense, um, these times test you. I wouldn't pretend they don't, and it's not a road I would have chosen to walk. But on the other hand, I look back now and I feel incredibly blessed in terms of the opportunities that have opened up. And they largely came from relationships. That was my other learning. Somebody said to me, the people who give you your next work will have seen you doing your last work. And that was broadly the case, that actually the people who did reach out to me, I'd worked with in various different ways in government. Um, and so, yes, I, I look back on on an evening, which I wouldn't particularly wish to repeat. Um, but on the other hand, the, the support and encouragement that I received from people was completely overwhelming. And that might seem paradoxical on a night on which 24,000 people didn't offer very much support to you at all. But uh, in that sense, no, if it's, uh, it's a time that I look back on and think I was unbelievably fortunate. Um, and I'm certain that I wouldn't have both had the opportunities and made whatever progress I've managed over the last three or four years without the support and encouragement of others. How unexpected was it? How much of a kind of psychological shock to the system? It wasn't that unexpected in that Michael Ashcroft had paid for two opinion polls of my constituency, one in November and one in the April, both of which showed me significantly behind. Essentially, the 2014 referendum took place. I'd been very prominent and engaged in that campaign. And what happened was that Essentially, six months later, in the general election of 2015, the 45% of the country who had voted for Scotland to be independent relitigated the general election in the uh, relitigated the referendum in the general election, and so literally in my seat, 45% of the electors voted for the SNP, and in that sense, I it wasn't a shock, but I'd made a conscious decision. Um, to campaign not in denial of those numbers, but in defiance of them. I thought, well, if I'm, I'm uh, 
going to lose, then I'm going to um, not look back and think I could have worked harder. We ran out of telephone numbers. We knocked on pretty much every door. I look back with a huge amount of um, actual, actual pride in those months when, frankly, we knew we were up against it, but we kept going. And I kind of still think if you, in politics, anticipate your defeat, you guarantee your defeat. And so there was a conscious defiance in saying, I'm going to keep going. Um, the one downside of that is it didn't leave me with a very clear plan the next morning, as in I'd kind of thrown myself at, at, at um, trying to get elected. But that's when all of those phone calls, all of those emails and all of those friends and supporters made a huge difference because those were the people who encouraged, carried and, and suggested to you what could come next. Uh, it's clear you don't miss the House of Commons, but is there any unfinished business with politics? Given the way the country is now, do you feel the urge to dive in and get your hands dirty? Well, if anything, politics seems to be moving away from what I believe rather than towards it. I mean, I, I, I grew up and participated in a politics where whatever side of the political divide you're on, there was a reasonable assumption that people were in the answers business. You might disagree with their answers, but the broad assumption was that all sides of the political debate were trying to offer answers. As I look not just here in the UK, but internationally now, something fundamental has shifted where you've got politicians who don't even really try and offer answers, but simply amplify anger and caress the sense of anger that people feel in a way that proves electorally successful, but is very different from what we've recognised before. I also think there's a fundamental difference just in terms of trust and truth. You know, I grew up again in a politics in the UK where we would have endless debates and discussions about whether the manifesto commitments added up, whether the numbers were right, reasonably important and challenging questions being asked. But again, with the assumption that most politicians on most sides of the argument were telling the truth. And in that sense, that doesn't seem to apply anymore either, where there seem to be politicians who feel that there's no cost or downside to lying with impunity. And that worries me in terms of the terms of our civil debate, because ultimately I think if we find ourselves in a world in which simultaneously nothing is true and everything is true, that's really dangerous for democracy. And actually, I think it's important that we, that we have common facts in our public discourse. And of course then people will diverge and disagree in how they interpret those facts, but in circumstances where we find ourselves where there's no common facts, it's very difficult to sustain a conversation. I know gallons of, ink, gallons of ink have been spilled on this, but do you have a theory about why that change has happened? What's caused it? I think it's um, a combination of factors. I think it's um, important to recognise the role of technology. I don't think it's exclusively technological, but I think technology is having a profound effect. In this, I, I draw on my former Harvard colleague and now um, uh, professor at Stanford uh, University, Neil Ferguson, who in his latest book, uh, which was really stimulated by his arrival in California, he found that as a historian, nobody wanted to talk to him at parties. As he said, in the Valley, um, ancient history seems to be anything before Google's first IPO. So this kind of caused him to think, what is it that technologists explain technologists' lack of interest in history? And he's gone and written a really powerful book about networks and hierarchies through history. And he says the moment that is most apposite and most relevant to what we're living through today is actually the Reformation. He said if you go back um, uh, to the Reformation, 
then there was a genuine belief by Martin Luther that if people could read the Bible in their own language without the intercession of a corrupt clergy, then we would have a communion of all believers. And he said that is not entirely dissimilar to what um, Mark Zuckerberg now believes. If we connect the world, everything will be awesome. And he said if the technologists understood a bit more history, they would realise that actually what happened was more than 100 years of religious war um, once we saw the virality of that um, uh, publication of the Bible in a range of different languages. It didn't lead to a communion of all believers as Martin Luther had believed. Now, in that sense, I think we are in the early years of developing social norms to cope with technological change. But at the moment... If we've wired the world, what we've ended up with are mutually suspicious communities susceptible to conspiracy theories throwing rocks at each other over the internet all too often, rather than what many people would have hoped for at the turn of the millennium, which was a far greater facility for understanding, for empathy and for communication coming together in the internet. So I think technology has a part to play in this. I think secondly, there has been a profound collapse in people's trust in figures of authority and in elites generally. And that's probably um, largely driven, I would uh, contend, by the financial crisis, the, the um, sense that if these people were so smart, why didn't they anticipate the financial crisis? And a sense that somehow they've managed to prevail and do okay, while many other people have been left picking up the bill. So I think the kind of distrust that we've seen over the last decade has continued to find and inform our politics. And then thirdly, I think there's a lot of um, people who feel that the world has changed profoundly round about them in ways that they didn't sign up for and they certainly didn't vote for. My former colleague in government, Jeff Mulgan, argues that there's really a narrative that was a, a kind of meta story that shaped the world over the last 20 or 30 years, that combination of trade, technology and liberalisation would make everybody richer and make everybody happier. And he said, far from that be the experience of many people, that combination of trade technology and liberalisation has left many people feeling disempowered rather than empowered and feeling impoverished rather than enriched. And if you like, the failure of that story has opened up space for other storytellers and other stories to emerge. And I think that helps explain the shift that we've seen in politics in recent years. So in that sense, I think technology is part of it. I think economics is part of it. I think a sense of cultural anxiety is part of it. Um, but these changes are profound and, and it's going to take the work of many years to rebuild. If you had your hand on the levers of power and the levers of power were magically much more well-greased and funded than they are in reality and uh, you were some sort of benign dictator, what would be the one thing you would start with um, to try and roll back some of those changes for the worse? Um, I suppose if you were to say to me what would affect the cultural changes, uh, willingness of people to turn towards each other rather than to turn away from each other, um, a, a worldview that not only uh, tolerates but celebrates um, not just that which we hold in common but that which distinguishes us um, individually and collectively, then I would probably come back to economics. If you were to say to me, if I was to take, say, a 10-year time horizon, what will lead to a fundamental shift away from this politics of anger? I'd probably say if you were to give the communities across the United Kingdom a decade of genuinely inclusive economic growth in which people saw 
their kids have a reasonable prospect of having a career rather than just a short-term job in which people were confident that public services would be well-funded, whether for themselves, for their kids or for their grandparents. Um, and, and truthfully, that's what worries me about politics today, that far from being confident that we're going to see a decade in which the economic foundations of people's sense of well-being is going to grow, my worry is that the politics that we're living through today will actually reinforce not just the economic inequalities that we've been experiencing, but also the sense of precariousness that a lot of people live with on a daily basis. Mm. That's really interesting and challenging because when I was framing the question, I was thinking of it in terms of culture and character and story and formation of people. And for, for your answer to be economics was not where I was expecting you to go. Let but me tell I think you in a why. I mean, I had the... I had the opportunity last year to make a, a radio series with the BBC around the theme of belonging. And it was in part my interest driven by, exactly as you've just said, a, a deep sense as to the centrality of story, of narrative, of shared stories in shaping our culture. And I travelled right around the country, spoke to people in Scotland and Wales and Leicestershire and London, across England. And if you like, belonging boiled down to two attributes um, as far as I could tell, one was those shared stories, but the other was a sense of security. And however compelling the storytellers, however um, persuasive the story, I think unless people feel a baseline sense of security, then those stories are going to continue to be found wanting. So in in straightforward terms, in answer to what what explains why politics is where it is today and what are the remedies available to us to take politics forward? Is it culture or is it economics? My answer is it's both. Yes, more difficult to separate, separate than I think perhaps we, perhaps I acknowledge. Um, I want to say a little bit, uh, to ask a little bit about your work as chair of UNICEF and uh, working alongside Bono and your teaching at, at Harvard, particularly around charity and poverty and international development and through the lens of thinking about public debates, one of the things that I observe is actually it almost seems to be getting more difficult to take to to talk about those things in public. That uh, whether it's kind of poverty fatigue or a, a sense of kind of overarching eco anxiety, making people feel a bit paralysed, or whether it's this phrase that we throw about around virtue signalling, and um, I think. The accusation of hypocrisy or a kind of default, default cynicism, meaning that except on a few number, few um, except in a few areas around identity and and justice around identity, which are really important, I think talking about philanthropy and charity and activism is getting harder. Have you experienced that? And what, if so, what helps with it? I think it depends how you talk about it. I mean, I um was at a meeting in, in Berlin last year where I met with Bill Gates, who's done extraordinary, life-changing, world-changing work in dealing with AIDS, TB and malaria over recent years. And if you like, in some ways, as a standing reproach to some of the very powerful critiques about millionaires and billionaires can never do any good, because actually Bill Gates has done extraordinary work, and I've had the opportunity to see that over many years, in a way that is of no direct benefit to him, but will be an extraordinary legacy that he will leave behind in terms of we are literally within touching distance of vanquishing polio from the face of the earth. We're making huge strides in relation to malaria and Bill and Melinda Gates deserve a lot of credit in, in that regard. 
I was having a version of this conversation with him and I explained that I had travelled from London that morning to Berlin and I counted as I walked to the tube in London in order to travel to Heathrow that I had to step around or step over nine homeless people. And when I arrived in Berlin, I was about an hour early for the meeting, I went into a cafe immediately opposite the, the hotel where I was meeting Bill Gates and someone came in and begged for money while I was sitting at the table preparing my notes. Now, it is very difficult to argue um, that somehow people living overseas are deserving of our charity if you don't acknowledge the claims of justice at home as well. And in that sense, it seems to me that I'm perfectly relaxed with an argument that says charity begins at home. I'm deeply unrelaxed about an argument that says charity ends at home. And actually, I think the way forward in making the case, not just for international development, but for the kind of charitable work that these organisations do, is by recognising the importance of our shared vulnerability. I think the great risk would be to somehow advocate for international development and seem like a rootless internationalist. The way forward has to be to be a rooted internationalist, to share and to understand the experience of people at home here in the United Kingdom, but on the other hand, don't deny the claims of justice in countries um, the, uh, all over the world. And in that sense, I think the importance of storytelling is going to grow rather than diminish in a public debate where truth and trust have been defined as the enemy, certainly by the President of the United States and by many others as well. In a, in a wasteland for trust, stories become more important, not less. Who tells them where the facts are embedded in the story? And in that sense, I'm not a pessimist, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. If I look at my kids' generation, I think they have a global perspective, partly born of just the world coming to them through the smartphone, that... Um, I would have given anything for 10 or 12 years ago when I was running DFID and encouraging people to think globally. But it does place a heavy burden of responsibility on those of us who believe that we've got responsibilities beyond the English Channel to continue to make that case in a way that is compelling, convincing, but also relevant to the experience of what people are having or what people are seeing here in the United Kingdom. Douglas Alexander, thanks so much for speaking to me on The Secret. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.